We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 this morning. Here in my hand, I hold a copy of a book uh, that became my constant companion over 45 years ago when I was a student at Independent Baptist College. And this isn't the one I had. I actually wore the first one out. This is my second one. But it's a Lectures in Systematic Theology by Henry Thiessen. And so I'm going to start on page one, and we're going to go to page 383. I hope you're not hungry today. <laughs> no. In this book, it has uh, breakdowns of uh, theology. And uh, it has uh, theology proper, which would be uh, theo means God. Ology, words, uh, words about God. And it has uh, anthropology, um, anthro being man and ology being the study of man, particularly in relationship to the Word of God. Eschatology, uh, eschat means last, and again, ology means the study of. It's a part of. Uh, the Bible and life that has to do with death and judgment and final destiny of the soul. Christology, of course, about Christ. Soteriology, soter means uh, Savior, how the teaching of the Bible on salvation. Bibliology, of course, the Bible. Angelology, of course, the study of angels. And eschatology, uh, the study of the church. Now, it all uh, sounds pretty highbrow and academic, uh, but it doesn't need to be. The teaching of the Bible is not to be grasped by a certain elite few, uh, but the Bible was written for all men, and it was written to be understood by men. And though the riches found in the Bible have never been mined out of it to its entirety, all of us have the privilege of partaking of the nuggets that's found uh, within them. And that's exactly what William T uh, Tyndale believed in that he wanted to have a Bible that could go in, in, even into the hands of the plowmen in England. He believed that God could be known, that you can know him. You can know all there is to know about him that the Bible teaches and so theology is not a study uh, of just the, that which is for the elite, uh, but for ordinary men. And today I want to show you an ordinary man who had a pretty checkered past, who became a great theologian, one of the best in the Bible. And we're going to look at the repentant thief from the cross. In Luke chapter 23... And beginning in verse 32, the scene is at the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross and the two thieves on both sides, one on one and one on the other. In verse 34 of the 
23rd chapter, it says, uh, well, let's begin in verse, verse 32. There were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiments and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, so let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest to thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And so this morning what I want to do is look at this thief becoming one of the great theologians of the Bible. But first I want to point out to you here how that this thief changed from an agnostic, uh, not knowing if there's really a God or who Jesus was, uh, to a theologian. We find uh, from references in the other Gospels that uh, both of these mocked him originally. Matthew says, Likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the Bible says in the verse 44 of Matthew 27, the thieves, that's the one on the left, the one on the right, also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in their teeth. That is, they were mocking, just like the... Uh, religious leaders were. And Mark, it says, it says in, in the 32nd verse of the 15th chapter, Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. But now in our passage from verses 39 through 43, we see that one of the malefactors has completely changed himself from mocking the Lord, from questioning who he was, from being what I'm calling an agnostic, not knowing if a God, questioning whether there even was a God, denying the idea of Jesus Christ, and doubting the word of God, in a space of just a few hours, uh, not, not much more than a, uh, just a couple of hours, he's going to change from being agnostic, being an unbeliever, questioning who Jesus is, mocking who Jesus is, he's going to change from that to being a theologian. What brought about the change? It, it was not a seminary class. There was no time for that. 
It was not some Christian religious pamphlet that the soldiers gave him. It was not some miracle that he witnessed performed by Christ, but it was an acknowledgement as truth in his heart of that which he already knew in his head. You see, being a theologian is not a matter of academia, but being a theologian is a matter of the heart. My understanding concerning Jesus Christ, my understanding concerning what the Bible says about God begins in the heart. Many people have went to great institutions, become theologians in the mind of, of the world, but gone out from that and died and went to hell because it's a matter of the heart. What we believe about God and what matters in our belief about God is what has taken place in the heart. Romans tells us, uh, for the invisible things of the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that without excuse, that man just by seeing creation is without excuse concerning God. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That man is not ignorant, man knows, and he, he understands that there is a God. That they can, uh, to be, actually to become an atheist, you have to be uh, taught to be an atheist. The difference between a fool and a theologian is a matter of the heart. And so, let's look at what the theology was. Why is this important? Why, is, why would we take time to talk about the theology of this thief? Because uh, unless you come in line with what he believed, you'll not see paradise as he saw it. The first thing is the theology. That is proper, uh, proper theology, not theology in a whole, encompasses ecclesiology and all the other stuff. But theology and what did he believe about God? Well, I think the most important thing we can see here is in verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? God, the proper theology concerning God, is one that has a fear of God. The very first words recorded from this repentant thief were the stern words of rebuke to the other about fearing God. The Almighty God is to be feared today. He is to be respected. He's, he is uh, one that holds your eternity in its hands. The telltale trait of lost mankind is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. It seems obvious that hanging on the cross, the Holy Spirit was reproving him of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, and he's, uh, his heart is being affected, and he is over, overwhelmed by the realization that, that he's going to have to stand before a holy God. He's going to have to stand before a righteous God, that, he's, that God is to be feared. Proverbs gives us something, some interesting uh, a verse very early in the book of Proverbs, setting the whole guideline and the principles of the whole book of Proverbs. 
But it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The man with the lowest IQ who has Jesus Christ as his Savior is, is, is not a fool. He's a, he's a theologian that's come to understand his relationship with God and that God needs to be respected and feared. On the contrast, the professor at the university who denies God and questions God and has no fear of God and says, does God know? Well, if it's this way, well, why hasn't God done anything? The contrast of the cross is outstanding. We find the Jewish leaders sneering at God, at Jesus on the cross. The people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him. The Roman soldiers were mocking him. And the soldiers also mocked coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. The unrepentant thief on the one side was hurling his abuse at Christ. And, and he, was saying, he was saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and save us. They all had one thing in common, the soldiers and the religious leaders and, and the unrepentant thief. They had in common, they had no fear of God. Theology begins with the fear of God in our heart. I'm sure that there were many there at the cross who were uh, maybe not even sneering or mocking. Some, some of them there were just curiosity seekers, kind of like in the early history of America when they would have a hanging and people would come from miles around driving in their buggies to go see the hanging. It wasn't, uh, it, it, there was those curiosity seekers. They came to view the spectacle. And they got a real show that day because there was an earthquake. The sun turned dark. And the Bible says that the people that came together to the site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. They were moved by what they saw. It was, it was shocking that the incident took place in a physical way that day and, and, to, and to see how Christ died in relationship to the others. But they weren't moved to have a fear of God. You may not be here this morning mocking like the religious leaders or, or even, even mocking like the Roman soldiers or particularly the thief on the cross, but you're kind of like the rest of the crowd. They're there and, and beholding him. And, and when they lay, left, they smote on their breasts, uh, showed some remorse, they showed some concern. But it wasn't concern that had to do with the fear of God for their life. And so let me ask you this morning from the words of a famous sermon by George Whitfield, was ever the remembrance of your sins grievous to you? Was the burdens of your sins intolerable to your thoughts? Did you ever see God's wrath might justly fall upon you on account of your actual transgressions against God? Were you ever in all your life sorry for your sins? Could you ever say, my sins are gone over my head as a burden too heavy for me to bear? Did you ever experience any such thing as this? Did ever any such thing as this pass between God and your soul? If not, for Jesus Christ's sake, do not call yourself a Christian. You may speak to your heart, but there is no peace. May the Lord awaken you. May the Lord convert you. May the Lord give you peace. 
before you go home today. Well, he hit right at the point that when a person is under conviction and a fear of God comes upon them, their, their, their transgressions are, are a terrible thing before them. That there's great sorrow in their heart. There is a fear that if I don't, if I don't settle this issue right now, then, then, then I face eternity in, in hell's fires. Is there, this morning, is your theology right? Do you have a fear of God? Salvation begins with a fear of God. Secondly, let's look at his anthropology. What did he believe about men? What did he believe about mankind? We have that summed up really very well for us in verse 41. And he said to him, he said, uh, does that all fear God, seeing that we're under the same condemnation? And then he says in verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. You see, we live in a day when men, uh, and it's probably been this way from Adam and Eve's time, but men are basically good. They consider themselves basically good. I don't think there's any better way to illustrate this than to talk about the, the, the Nazi occupation of Holland and the, a girl who lived there who wrote a diary that became famous, her diary, and they found it after the Nazis had killed her. But Anne Frank, on a weekly basis, hiding as a Jewish girl in Holland, saw her Jewish family and friends arrested and taken away. Yet she wrote this in her diary. In spite, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion misery, and death. But you see, she had her anthropology wrong. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And when this thief said, you know, we're in the same condemnation and, and we indeed justly, surely he was talking about his condemnation underneath the rules and laws of Rome, but he also saw that as he's here and his death is imminent, that he's concerned about his uh, eternal destiny. And he said, indeed, justly, that his anthropology was that my condemnation is just, that, that all his sin and come short of the glory of God. And he was saying, amen to that. As I look at myself and I look at mankind, my anthropology is the fact that man is a lost sinner, that man has sinned, departed from God, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. Now we know that the things whatsoever the law saith, the same to them that under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world will become guilty before God. Basically, he's saying, you know, we indeed justly, what he's saying is, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of breaking Rome's laws, and I'm guilty of breaking God's laws. The Bible says there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so let me ask you this morning, what is your anthropology? What do you believe about mankind? And more particularly, what do you believe about yourself? Do you understand that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
Do you understand like David when he said that he was, in sin he was shapen, and he was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. Do you understand that all of your righteousnesses, everything that you do in a righteous fashion, when God sees them before you're saved, are as filthy rags. In Psalm 53, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there was any that did understand and did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. His anthropology fell in line with exactly what God said. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Maybe you're here as a young person that's never professed Christ as your Savior. What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about where you're going to spend eternity? What do you believe about what God says about you? You know, yeah, you obey your parents, and sometimes you don't jump up and do it right away, but, but you know, in the end, you're really a pretty good person. But that's the wrong anthropology. The anthropology that lines up with the Word of God is that I'm deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that I need some intervention into my life or I'm going to be justly condemned forever. Now, let us note the eschatology. We've seen the theology, that it begins with a fear of God. The anthropology is that we're all together become filthy. There's none good, no, not one. Well, what about the eschatology? Eschatology simply means, what about the future? What's going to happen in the future? What do you believe about the future? Uh, there's a lot of uh, debate around end time uh, the, uh, eschatology in, in books such as this. Will there be a rapture before the tribulation? Or will we be raptured in the middle of the tribulation? Or will we be raptured after the tribulation? Will there even be a rapture? Will there be a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth? Or are we already in that thousand year reign and we're going to go straight or straight into eternity and there'll be no thousand year reign of Christ. And so much is talked about that. But you see, the bottom line when it comes to eschatology, the bottom line of studying the end times is very simple and it's very personal. Where will you go when you die? That's the first answer. Who cares when the tribulation is? I need to know where I'm going to go when I die. What did he believe about eschatology? There's nothing more serious and more sobering and more personal than to be asked, where will you spend eternity? I never liked that question when I was a young, young boy. Where will you spend eternity? It's a very important eschatological question. One of the most sobering statements in the Bible along this line was in, found in Luke chapter 12. And I send to you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him that his eschatology was one that he was concerned about where he was going to spend eternity. He knew he was justly condemned and headed for hell, 
because he said the due reward of our deeds. He knew about eschatology. He knew that death was not the end because he says, remember me when thou comest unto thy kingdom. He knew that the, what is the life that's lived on this world when a person dies, that that is not the end of his being, not the end of his person. He knew that Christ was king. And one day he'd rule over this world because he says, remember me when thou comest into my kingdom. There will be a, a place of eternity. There will be a kingdom of God. The child of God has that assurance that he's got heaven. And we, can, we, we need to be concerned now as being saved whether that entrance into that heaven is going to be an abundant entrance or is this going to be by the skin of our teeth. But what do you believe about eschatology? What do you believe about the future? The primary thing, as I said, is the basic bottom line. Where will you spend eternity? All else, I may not, I may not understand all the rest of it. I, I, I'm not a serious student when it comes to uh, prophecy, and I need to, you know, build myself up in those areas. But I do know this. I know to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know that when I die, I'm going to go to be with the Lord. I know that in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it weren't so, he would have told me so. And he's gone to prepare a place for me. What do you know? What do you believe about the future? What do you believe about eschatology? Do you know where you'll spend eternity? And then we look at his Christology. What did he believe about Christ? It's so important that we grasp the Christology of this thief. What you believe concerning the person of Jesus Christ will mean either heaven or hell for you. He knew, number one, he knew that Christ was righteous. Look what he says here in verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. That's a pretty broad statement. He didn't say, you know, this man's not done anything to be crucified. This man, you know, lived a pretty good life. No, he said, this man has done nothing amiss. Nothing, not one thing. The what I believe about this man on the center cross, that he says, he has not done one thing that's amiss. That the Christology of the thief was that, that he was a, 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 a righteous man, that he was a, a sinless man. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Does your Christology include the conviction that Jesus in his humanity walked upon this earth, who did no sin, and nor God was found in his mouth? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the person of the Jesus Christ and why he came and how he came and, and in, his, in his sinlessness? 
You see also in this passage when it comes to Jesus that he appealed to Christ and Christ alone. That he knew that Christ was exclusive in a sense. That he knew that there was none other like Christ. He could have appealed to the soldiers for relief. He could have said, can you just ease up here a little bit or can you provide for me a, a drink of something that will deaden the pain? Uh, he could have appealed that they would take him down. You know, I won't do it again. But we don't find him appealing to the soldiers. He could have appealed to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees that witnessed the affairs of that day and saying, "Come, have mercy on me. Can't you guys do something for me? Can't you pay my fine? Or can't you somehow bargain with Rome and, and get me off the cross? But he did not. He could have called out to there as he was on the cross and saw someone out there he knew and he'd piled around with. And he could have appealed to him to, get me down from here. Help me, help me get off of here. He could have appealed to his friends and he could have appealed to his family. that Somehow they're going to benefit him and help him. But he did not. He could have appealed for his good works that he'd done. Yeah, you know, I committed this crime, but there are so many more things that I've done that's positive and it's been beneficial to, to Israel, but it's also been beneficial to you, Rome, and, and you soldiers need to understand that. But he did not. He made his appeal to the only one he could make the appeal to. Jesus exclusively is the Savior of the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The preacher in Acts 4, speaking of Christ, said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Listen, you'll not see paradise without going through Christ Jesus. You know, he's exclusive. Not only was he righteous and exclusive, but he requested that Christ would forgive him. We don't find the words exactly forgive me, but in those words, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, it was a request to be remembered by the Lord. Remembered how? Remember in a, in a, in a fashion of grace. Remember and reaching out to me. Somehow take my sins that I can't take away and put them on you. Somehow pay for my sin. He knew his ultimate need was forgiveness. Christology must be gotten right. We're not saved from a bad life. We're not saved from ourselves. We're not saved from our circumstances, but our need is to be saved from the wrath of God. And he understood that. That we indeed justly, saved from the condemnation of our sin, our sins being taken away and buried in the deepest sea. And then when he thought of Christ, he, uh, his, his Christology included the resurrection when thou comest to thy kingdom. He knew. He knew that as all three of them died that day there on Calvary, the place of the skull, Golgotha, 
He knew when they all died that day that that wasn't the end. And he knew, remember me when thou comest to thy kingdom. He knew that Jesus was going to arise from the dead. He knew that this wasn't the end. He knew that he was a coming king. He knew that he was going to a kingdom that one day would come down and be here in this earth. The songwriter asks a serious question. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. For one day, you will be asking, what will he do with me? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with Jesus? Well, I'm just going to keep coming to church, and I'm going to keep an open mind, and I'm going to stay neutral. No, neutral, you cannot be. You have to make a decision, and every morning, Sunday morning, when the gospel's been preached here, and, and pastor calls for bowed heads, and we give an invitation, there's, there comes to your mind and heart, whether you realize this or not, you're making a decision, you're not neutral. To, to decide not to decide is to make a decision that's not neutral. Neutral you cannot be. For one day you're going to be asking, what is he going to do with me? His Christology was that he needed the Lord. And <clears throat> if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, note the soteriology. The formula of salvation has always been repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. We see no words of repentance, and we don't even see the word faith here. But this whole passage shouts of repentance and faith. He doesn't try to justify himself. We indeed justly are condemned. He makes no excuses for his poor upbringing. But with simply a humble heart admitting the just condemnation and a request to be remembered. His faith is expressed by his request to God. And so his humility pointed out his repentance and requesting God to save him, his faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's no question. There was no question with this thief about whether we should claim Jesus as Lord. Big debate in some circles about lordship salvation and whether we need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord to be saved. Well, he, he knew he was Lord. Remember me. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And so what about your theology today? Do your thoughts toward God only contain the idea that he's a creator, that he's the original cause? He's like a good grandpa, that he takes care of you. Does your theology at all contain a fear of God? Dost thou not fear God? The question that I applied to your heart this morning, dost thou not fear God? Are you afraid of God? 
Is there any fear that floods over your heart that if you died today, you would go straight to hell? Does thou not fear God? Don't you fear God? Is there no fear in your heart concerning your eternity? The day that I was saved, the overwhelming thought running through my mind was, if I don't get this settled, I could go out into eternity lost and undone. There was a fear. But on the flip side of that, there was him beckoning to, for me to come to him. Come unto me, all your labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I couldn't remain in that place of fear. And what a joy, isn't it, when uh, there's no fear of God in your heart anymore concerning where you're going to spend eternity. Do you fear God? In any place in your life, in your experience of concerning religion, was there a fear of God? What about, what about your thoughts concerning man? Do you agree with Anne Frank that, that there's basically good in all of us while the Nazis were carting her friends and family off to the gas chambers. The Bible says <clears throat> they're all gone out of the way. They'll all be given, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Following World War II, there was a Jewish man named Elie Wiesel, or Wiesel, that he gave his life in helping pursue and bringing to justice Nazis who attempted to wipe out the Jewish people. And they vigorously pursued Adolf Eichmann, who was the man put in charge of what was called the final solution to the Jewish question. And that solution was the gas chambers. Eichmann stated in 1945, Thou leap into my grave laughing because the feeling that I have five million human beings on my conscience is for me a source of extraordinary satisfaction. And he admitted that that was meant concerning the Jews. And it was an accurate account of his thinking during the time. Well, on May 11th, there's been a movie made of this, and it's a wonderful movie. In 1960, going around the Argentinian government who was protecting these guys, the forces, national forces of Israel, captured Eichmann in Argentina. They're going to bring him back to Jerusalem for trial. And Ali Weissel would see the, he saw this Eichmann guy. He'd never seen him personally, but he was going to go to the trial to see him. And he imagined him as an evil monster. And he wanted to see what such a horrible person could look like. And when they let him out in handcuffs into the courtroom, Eli Weissel passed out in his chair. Later, he was interviewed on Larry King's show, and Larry asked him what had happened. And he said, I knew what Eichmann had said. I knew how he planned the gas chambers. I knew how horrible he was. 
But when he walked out that day, I realized that he was a man, just like I'm a man. And that there's a little bit of Eichmann in all of us. Listen, there's none good, no, not one. Your anthropology needs to come to a place where you see yourself as lost and undone and let the Lord make a new creature out of you and become a changed person. Do you understand that our righteousness is filthy rags? Do you understand that without him we're nothing? Do you understand that hell is your home if you will not repent? How we need to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that word destroy doesn't mean annihilate, but it means desecrate. It's completely valueless. When it comes to your eschatology, where will you spend eternity? You see, today what you believe about Christ will determine the question the Bible says, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. With a thief on the cross today, justly condemned. But what you believe about the one on the center cross, you'll either perish or you'll not perish. You either have everlasting life or everlasting death. You see, great theologians are not made by great reading of religious books, but great theologians is a heart issue. And what lies in the balance is paradise. It's not about your past. He had a filthy, filthy past. He deserved to be received, received capital punishment from the hands of Rome. But instead, the Lord said, today, thou will be with me in paradise. Where will you spend eternity? Pastor Daniel.